Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Joined today by Sayer Payne. Sayer is a business litigation attorney in Cincinnati, Ohio, and prior to that was a Ranger-qualified U.S. Army infantry officer serving with the 101st Airborne Division, where he and I worked together for a couple years. I think Sayer adds some unique context to the story we're going to dive into today, Battle of Mogadishu. All right, today we've got the story of two Medal of Honor recipients. They were the first two recipients uh, post the Vietnam War. We're talking about Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart and Master Sergeant Gary Gordon. And to talk through these in the Battle of Black Hawk Down and the Battle of Mogadishu, joined by Sayer Payne. Sayer, thanks. Oh, yeah, of course. Need some help on this one. There's a lot of in and out and trying to, it's outside of a conflict. You know, we were talking earlier how easy it is to, you're talking about like a, a battle in the Pacific, like why were we on Iwo Jima? Well, it was World War II, so we were working our way to Japan. This is a little different. Mm-hmm. A little, uh, little outside of kind of what's going on in 1993. Right. So we'll, we'll dive into a little background here and, uh, and get up to the actions that uh, we're going to talk about with Sergeant First Class Shugart and Master Sergeant Gordon. So Somalia is a country in Africa, sits in the northeast or I guess easternmost tip of the country. And within Somalia, Mogadishu is a city um, kind of in the southern, southeastern portion of the country, sits on the coast. And in 1991, a civil war erupted. So it was pretty nasty. Uh, A lot of different factions that were fighting. By 1992, the international community was trying to provide some sort of humanitarian aid, some successful, some not. And then by 1993, the international community decided to take a little more heavy-handed approach and said, we're going to distribute this aid ourselves because it's not getting done. They pulled in, the UN pulled in a lot of different parties and had an agreement signed, kind of like a ceasefire, um, just trying to get a way to end the fighting because of the, the incredible amount of famine and civilian casualties. And everybody signed, and it looked like we were on the right track, or we, that looked like the world was on the right track here. But then a gentleman that ran one of the militant factions, Mohammed Farah Adid, went against the agreement and backed out, if you will, and started taking an aggressive stance, even targeting with lethal means some of the United Nations troops. Uh, a couple more pieces here, and then we'll, we'll start to get into, into the battle. But anything, anything at this point, Sarah? Um, just maybe to reiterate this timeline and what's going on in the world, just because I'm just thinking about me growing up or whatever, like, kind of like a kid of the 90s. So when you and I were in high school is when 9-11 happened. It's like we were almost 16. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Like, I already knew that I wanted to go in the Army. I knew that in the 90s. And growing up as a kid, this is what I thought I'd be doing pre-9-11. Would be, you, you've got this in the early 90s. You've got uh, Kosovo. So basically, we're all these asshole um, dictators. Saddam Hussein, let's throw him in the mix, too. Yeah. Basically, we have these warlords, um, dictators, persecution of 
you know, that are doing these type of things and, and they're obviously intentionally um, creating famine in Somalia. So anyway, I just, I just remember, I have memories of this as a kid thinking this would have been when I wanted to sign up in the army, this is kind of what I ex- thought I would have been doing back then, this type of stuff. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I guess we had desert storm a few years prior. Um, that was, so for me, that was something that, that was kind of uh, something I looked towards. I had the desert storm trading cards and that was something that brought the army kind of the light for me. But I agree. This is right in that window where this is what the military is doing. These kind of one-off missions. Yeah. Yep. And this was a warlord, not a dictator, but sort of same thing. It, it, there wasn't, you know, cold war was over. Uh, so it's like the Russia thing. We didn't really grow up with that. That was more history for us. And then um, this whole Islamic terrorism, that happened in the 70s and 80s. A lot of that with hijackings. But to me, again, growing up, I didn't really think that that was a threat back then. Because, again, all that prior stuff was history. So this was kind of it. The global peacekeeping mission. You know, the UN type stuff. Yeah, that's valid. And and it kind of turns here in uh, in July of 1993, or really in June of 1993. That's when Adid starts attacking some of the international community and the mission starts to shift a little bit. And that's going to be a term we'll come back to a few times here. Um, in July, the 12th of the July is an event called Bloody Monday. And I think it comes down to perception. The United States targeted a building they thought was full of some of the deeds head advisors and they, they fired some missiles into it and, and ground forces came in after. And it, I mean, the U S said that it was, it was good intelligence and then bad intelligence. And, and then the people on the ground said it was all civilians that were killed. But nonetheless, you start to see this shift within the population where maybe the United States isn't just coming in to help, but they might actually be viewed as an enemy in August. There's an IED that's laid uh, detonates next to an American vehicle, killing four U.S. soldiers. And that kind of prompts uh, President Clinton to say enough. And on 22nd August of 1993, Special Operations Forces begin landing in Mogadishu, or outside of Mogadishu. So this is where the stage is really set for getting into what is known as Operation Gothic Serpent, or the Battle of Mogadishu, or Black Hawk Down. So that special operations force was sizable and not to downplay the conventional forces that were there or international forces that were there. But the forces we're going to end up talking about today are from the 75th Ranger Regiment, um, a detachment from the first special operations forces, first special forces operational detachment Delta or Delta Force, and then some folks from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Those three units are going to play a major role in what we get into here. I think Sarah, good to dive into the plan yeah. here, the plan of the operation. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then I know that there were some regular Army units there, too. I think 10th mm-hmm. Mountain was there, a um, handful of others, too. Cause it, and it was also not just United States. And I wouldn't know all of the countries, but um, it was a multinational sort of task force as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, worth remembering is that we don't have – we're not also trying to fight a war in Iraq or Afghanistan at the same time, right? So um, – there were forces available from across the army to come uh, to come serve this mission. Yep, and for us, post uh, Desert Storm, 
which obviously wasn't a big challenge. So um, we've got, you know, really well-equipped and well-trained soldiers that are, are not exhausted and beat up. Um, they're pretty much ready to go for exactly something like this. There you go. So the plan that was coming together with the special operations forces on the ground was going to be, this was not, you know, this wasn't, the plan here was not to have one big operation and go home. This is supposed to be just one part of many, many operations over the coming months until stability returned to Somalia. But on October 3rd, 1993, Operation Gothic Serpent was designed to have U.S. forces move into uh, downtown Mogadishu and capture some of Adid's key advisors. The high level of the plan was that you would have some forces come in via helicopter. Uh, some would, via helicopter, move into the objective and, and try to capture those advisors. Others would set down around the perimeter to provide security. And then you would have a ground element that would drive and meet these folks near or around the objective. And after the advisors have been detained, they jump in the vehicles and head on back home to the American base. So looks good on paper. It's, it's kind of a mix of it's complicated and it's also not super complicated when you, you know, when I just summarize the entire thing in 30 seconds, it doesn't sound very complicated, but they're going into a hostile area and that's never going to be as simple as it sounds. And they're also moving, you know, you've got helicopter units coming in to land and you have ground forces and they're all supposed to meet sort of at the same time. And that can, that's that right there is complicated because it's hard to be precise in these types of situations. Yeah, that's a good point. It's going to add to it here. So they, as they're, everybody kicks off, they start the operation on time, ready to go. They near the objective building and almost right away start to receive small arms fire. So it's not, I don't know, Sarah, what's the right way to say this? Like it wasn't unexpected, but it also wasn't like, it wasn't 100% expected that they were going to start receiving fire on the objective. So right. it's going to throw things on. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it kind of raises everybody's hackles like, okay, now this is for real. We're in, we're in Indian country now. Mm-hmm. So at 1542 on that day or 342 in the afternoon, the first objective, the uh, Delta operators land and begin their movement into the first objective. Things are going smoothly. There's a, there is a hiccup with uh, one of the ranger elements where a, a ranger falls out of a helicopter um, and it, is, it starts to shift some plans on the ground. But all things considered, things are moving relatively smoothly until 1620, about, tw- about 40 minutes after the first helicopter landed, a black a, uh, enemy fighter on the ground fires an RPG and strikes a Blackhawk helicopter by call sign of Super 6-1 and the helicopter crashes in the streets of Mogadishu. This is another time where we use the term, the mission ships. So it goes from, we are here to capture these advisors to a local warlord, to there are, at the time, unknown, wounded and or killed Americans on the ground in a city that is now firing on American forces from all sides, and just about everything changes focus to recover those Americans, the aircraft, and anything else they can. Yeah, and I think it's because it's not like 
when you say uh, this sort of contact was unexpected, I think it was because this was supposed to be more routine than anything. So it's not really like they had, it's not the equivalent of having like Bin Laden cornered where this is your moment to get them. I think that they also thought that this was supposed to just be a snatch and grab, not incredibly difficult, which probably means that they could, you know, they could probably get them again in the future, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know priorities do because there are times where the mission has to continue i'm sure if if there was a helicopter crash like when they did get bin laden finally they probably would have i bet they had some sort of contingency plan if they had bin laden corn they were going to get them and sort of have those casualties and consequences as a result here just a little bit different of a scenario that's a good way to put it it's almost like the uh like the priorities shift on the ground and in this case it's hey these advisors don't supersede getting these Americans back home or, or getting to our wounded guys on the ground. Right. Yeah. hadn't thought of it that way. It's a good way to put it. Well, so by mid afternoon on October 3rd, everybody is doing their best to get to this helicopter crash site. And it's not easy. You know, this isn't, this isn't New York city. They're not necessarily paved roads and sometimes they're blocked intentionally or unintentionally and navigation is challenging and, there's a lot of noise. Everybody is talking over one another and trying to organize. It's, it's a challenge to get everybody organized in the middle of this fight. Remember, there's still bullets flying in every direction. Organize, shift their mission, and get them to a new place in the middle of the city they may never have been before. In the midst of that chaos, at 1640, barely 20 minutes later, a second Blackhawk catches an RPG, call sign Super 6-4, and that helicopter also crashes in Mogadishu, not far away from the first. Now the entire mission's changed. So with everybody heading to that first crash site, it's not as simple as taking a left instead of a right. They're fighting their way there, taking heavy casualties the whole way. They're getting stuck and having to relocate, having to strong point buildings, having to stop and set up positions for their wounded. And now there's a second location that they need to move to secure and, and hopefully get the Americans out of the crash and, and back home or, or recover their remains as needed. So I think it's fair to say by 1640 on October 3rd, um, there was an entirely different mission set on the ground and everybody's mindset had completely changed. And that is where we enter into Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart and Master Sergeant Gary Gordon circling overhead, providing sniper support for above. Before we dive into that, say or anything we need to talk to to kind of better better paint that picture. I don't think so. Um, I always remember, well, just maybe the importance of the helicopters going down. How that is a just a it's a it's a gold for them to be able to shoot down one of those type of things because of the chaos that it um, creates. I think they. People knew that from shooting down aircraft in Vietnam and capturing pilots and what that did there. Um, I've always heard that rumor. I don't know. I don't know if it's true that Bin Laden, you know, these techniques, these tactics that they used to shoot down these particular helicopters were similar to how Mujahideen would do it against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And, you know, Bin Laden was a part of that. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I don't know if you've heard that before. But um, e- either way, it still fits into that this is a strategy. 
I mean, it's not just, oh, there happens to be a helicopter here. Let's see if I can shoot it down. No, I mean, that this is gold for them to be able to shoot down. So they, they were trying to do this. Um, I, I'm sure they didn't know the direct routes and that sort of thing, but they probably had an idea. And they, and they obviously had the RPGs and the certain equipment staged from the right vantage point to be able to do this type of thing. And I think it speaks to... Um it speaks to how we approached the mission as well, that there were Blackhawks that were within range of RPG fire after a gunfight had erupted on the ground. Um, is that the best place for Blackhawk? You know, there's, right. there's gunships that are, are there for, for certain reasons and very specific reasons. Um, I think as you get into, you know, I'm, I'm, I would bet that in 2003, 2004 Iraq, you didn't have Blackhawks hovering low over, over Fallujah or Sadr City. Um, you, you couldn't risk them being shot down. You underst- we understood better maybe um, the risk on the ground. I don't know if that was fully grasped during the Battle of Mogadishu until you know, right in the middle of the afternoon. What's interesting, even now just thinking about it, just for some reason, there's a psychological element because you know how often, especially in Iraq, have um, Humvees get vaporized. Mm-hmm. You lose four or five people, boom, or a striker vehicle. You could lose, you know, like 10 or something. Um, so you're great loss of life, similar amount in quantity as a Blackhawk going down. But for some reason, a, a helicopter going down is so much more significant. For some reason, that event when, you know, trucks and stuff get RPG'd all the time, disabled and whatever, people die, that sort of thing. It's just the helicopter. There's a, there is a psychological element to when they go down. And a shitstorm that ensues. Yeah, chaos. And that's what Sergeant First Class Shugart and, and Master Sergeant Gordon were watching. So these two were snipers um, serving with the special force, serving with the Army Special Forces uh, Delta Force, and they were tasked with providing sniper cover from above. Which I, I have a hard time grasping the viability of that tactic. It that sounds to me like something that's putting on that somebody writes down on an op order and says, we check the box for sniper cover. They're going to be in a helicopter. I don't, it seems like it's a very unreliable tactic in the middle of a dense urban city like Mogadishu. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, it's like these guys were Delta force in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they would have been, the cream of the crop. And I say that because there wasn't a lot going on. So I really think that the best of the best of the best that were probably bored in the army in the eighties and all of that. I mean, these are like the varsity, varsity, varsity athletes of the army. And um, if anybody could do that sort of thing, I feel like it's those guys. It's a good point. Um, The other thing that these guys have at their disposal is they're able to watch this battle unfold from above. And the, I'm going to say official and then give a giant range, the official strength on the ground is between 2,000 and 4,000 enemy fighters, but that I don't think captures that you had a lot of civilians that maybe weren't shooting at Americans, but certainly weren't going to help in any way and might facilitate the enemy. So, I mean, take that at the low number, 2,000 against 160 Americans um, or the upper side, 4,000 against 160. It's crazy 
outnumbered. But watching from above, Sergeant First Class Shoe Guard, Master Sergeant Gordon, see the second crash site. They see that the American forces aren't going to be able to get over there to secure what is what they believe is at least a wounded service member on the ground, and they ask to be put down. They ask to get on the ground and start defending that site themselves. They ask twice. They get denied. Too dangerous, too risky. We can't do it. I mean, and, which makes sense. You're asking to not just put soldiers on the ground, but you're asking to put a helicopter on the ground. Remember, they just had two shot down. <laughs> How close do you want another helicopter getting to the battlefield? They ask again, declined again, and the third time they're granted approval to uh, to land and, and move to the crash site of Super 6-4 and hopefully rescue, set up shop to um, defend and rescue whoever is there on the ground. There was a third uh, sniper in that helicopter with, with these two gentlemen, um, but the crew chief was wounded. So he ended up staying to man the, uh, the machine gun there in the helicopter, but the aircraft lands, Shugart and Gordon get out and so begins their defense of the crash site. They start uh, pushing through. So again, remember that from above, they're looking down, able to see where everything's going on. They start pushing through, fighting through uh, enemy forces until they get to the site of Super 6-4. And once there, they identify that there is uh, one American service member still alive. It's Warrant Officer Mike Durant. The other crew chiefs and pilots are killed. But Shugart and Gordon go about moving the American bodies moving the American soldiers of the, or the deceased American soldiers, as well as uh, Warrant Officer Mike Durant into a more defensible position and Shugart and Gordon with only their sidearms and rifles place themselves kind of in the, in the line of fire to best defend, best defend the Americans. And they're taking fire this whole time, right? Nonstop. I mean, I'm yeah. sure all of this. Yeah. They're, they have to fight to get there. I mean, they're in a they're in a hot zone. It's pretty obvious where the helicopter went down in this type of situation. They know where it is. Everybody knows where it is, and they're 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 moving on it. At the end of the day, they wouldn't end up being able to get American forces to that crash site very quickly at all. But nonetheless, Sergeant First Class Shugard, Master Sergeant Gordon, set up set up in position, set up in defensive positions, and begin their defense. And they eventually are overrun. I mean, again, we're talking, if you just look at their position, it's, it's easily in the hundreds of people assaulting their position, enemy fighters assaulting their position. They only have the ammunition on their persons and they're getting shot at from, I don't know, three sides, four sides from above. There's people charging their position. They are able to beat back the enemy for long enough to uh, move Warrant Officer Mike Durant out of the helicopter. Um, but shortly after being on the ground and beginning their defense, both Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart and Master Sergeant Gary Gordon would be overrun and killed by enemy fighters. And it makes you wonder when they did that, because um, obviously they're going into the hot zone. I just want – they had to have known at, even to the point – not necessarily that they were going to die. Who knows about that part? But they only had X amount of ammo even going into that fight mm-hmm. um, and just the guts just heading right into hundreds of people 
it, it's it's quite incredible probably knowing that you don't have enough ammo for all the people that are trying to shoot you. Yeah. I, uh, the way I like to look at this is, or my viewpoint is, is not necessarily that they knew that they would die, but they thought there was, you know, maybe if they got to the ground, there might be a 5% chance that they could hold on right. until us forces showed up. Right. And, and that's, and that is why I think what they did was so incredible is, I mean, it, I don't know, that number's different for everybody to say, I'll go down there and, and stand in the line of fire for five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour. I, I think they thought there was a chance, but not, not, I mean, they were watching it from above. They saw what was happening on the ground. They couldn't, they, I don't think they realistically could have expected um, a good chance of, of walking away from that fight. Yeah, but I think that they probably knew that they were going to move the needle, though. Yeah. Yeah, well, that needle being moved, in this case, um, well, to, to back up a little bit, one of the arguments for whether or not they should be placed down on the ground was, is there anybody even alive? You know, are, are we right. going to sacrifice two more American soldiers for for what? Is, is there anybody even alive on the ground? Well, there was somebody alive on the ground. There was Warrant Officer Mike Durant, and that time that they bought um, likely was the reason that he would end up being captured by one of the warlords and not killed by the mob that was showing up right when they got there. Right. He was captured and eventually released. Mm -hmm. So their action, I mean, even if it just bought an extra five minutes, saved, saved life. Absolutely. Right. So both men um, killed in combat on, on 3 October 1993, and shortly thereafter, both would be awarded the Medal of Honor, and those would be the first Medal of Honor, the first Medal of Honors to be awarded since the Vietnam War. So, hmm. you know, almost 20 years. Yeah, just and I, and it was quickly thereafter, wasn't it? I don't think there was long administrative delay or anything like that i think it was looks like about less than a year yeah it's great yeah right yeah it was an interesting time because they were worried you know one of the the first real delta force mission was sort of botched and that was during the whole iranian hostage crisis yeah and so i still think even in the 90s people were also still scarred from vietnam so this is and the uh, Desert Storm was so successful, even though Americans did die, it was overwhelmingly a, a win. And this was an interesting sort of situation where they it, it was kind of a got beat up a little bit, you know, and just not something that Americans are used to having on the forefront on TV. And sort of the idea of having Americans stranded in a, in a country like Africa um, makes people think of, of what are we doing there even back then, yeah. right? Because you always had your people, like, why are we involving ourselves in this type of thing? Um, but it is like a, it's a very interesting battle because it's really not tied or connected to really any other piece. It wasn't a piece of history. It's not a big puzzle it's not a puzzle piece that fits into really anything. It's sort of its own little chasm, its own little um, 
role that it played as a singular sort of event in Somalia that sort of stands alone, I think, at least in military history. You're right. And, and we just kind of left shortly thereafter. Um, your point about what the heck are we doing in Africa? Where is Somalia? What is Mogadishu? Um, and why are Americans being killed there? 19 that day. Um, I think that rippled through the government for a while. I, mean, I think there's a reason you didn't see us heavily involved in very much uh, really until, until after the 9-11 attacks. And I think Clinton was criticized, like, because Rwanda came after this. This was Clinton's first year of office, uh, Mogadishu was. And then Rwanda, I think, was a couple years, I think so. I think it came after, pretty sure about that. And a lot of people wanted U.S. intervention in straight-up genocide. I think it was pretty objective genocide. Like, it was pretty well-known what was going on. But we did not do it. We did not intervene. Not to the military extent that people were wanting. And I feel, I feel like this had to have played a role in that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Because if it was successful, think if they, think if nobody even knew about this really happening. If the Blackhawks, if they just swiped, you know, they swiped them up, a deed, they got them, did what they ever did. You know, then they got the rice distributed. No problem. No problem. You know, it's probably wouldn't, it would have been a lot easier decision to make that, then later decision to go into uh, Rwanda. Yeah, just do it again. We've, we've done it. Been successful. Right. Do it again. Yeah. Right. So it, it did sort of change history in a way. Well, it did. It, of course it did. We're talking about it. 25 years later, however long it's been. One thing that I think is interesting is you, you kind of tipped it off right at the beginning is um, this is one of the things that prompted you to want to join the military. Well, anybody who was of age in 1993 to recognize, to at least understand what had happened or or be able to see it on the TV, these are the people that said, Ranger, what's that? Maybe I'd like to be a Ranger um, or the Army in general or a pilot. What's the 160th sword? People start looking into it. The people that, that acted off of seeing this on the TV and maybe getting upset and deciding they're going to join and they're going to serve, um, I'll tell you what, if they were in some of these units, they were heavily involved by the time they got into the service post 9-11. So um, right. this, could have, this, this event could have prompted some people to join the service that had made a substantial impact over the last 20 years. Well, and again, as a kid of the 90s, I thought that, yeah, if you, really, if you wanted to see action and go overseas and do that sort of thing, that's what you kind of have to do is join some of these, you know, whether it's Ranger regiments, but Green Berets, whatever, Navy SEALs. That was the only action back then. It seemed like just because it's not like we were deploying whole units. We weren't deploying. It didn't feel like that, at least as a kid. The 101st Airborne, the 82nd, all those, those were like Vietnam units. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just wasn't a thing back then. So it's, this was your ticket. That's what I. That's what. That's what I thought at least as a kid. Yeah, it's fair. Changed, <laughs> changed in two thousand one. But, um, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have been if somebody went went forward with that mindset. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have, wouldn't have been wrong. No, it still would have gotten you know, a ticket to, to action, of course. Yeah. Well, anything else you think we need to add on here? Should we go ahead and wrap it up? They wrap it up. All right, so we've got uh, talking about Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart and Master Sergeant Gary Gordon, 
and their actions to be awarded the Medal of Honor during the Battle of Mogadishu um, or Operation Gothic Serpent or the Black Hawk Down incident. If you're looking for more information on that, there's a great movie and book by that name. But uh, thanks for joining today, Sarah. Fun talking through this with you. Yeah, for sure. Um, interesting memories with this one. It's kind of yeah. quasi living through it as a little kid. I like it. Appreciate so. you jumping on, man, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, sounds good. All right, later. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.